Section 16 of The Wounded Name by D.K. Broster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Eileen. Chapter 6, Part 3 He pulled himself together. Though there could be no triumphant coup for him, there need be no disaster. Having allowed plenty of time for Saint-Étienne's infantry to get to pont aux before Colonel Richard could possibly reach it, he naturally had ample time to ride beyond it himself. I'll get me a glass of wine and a crust, he said hurriedly, as the host emerged half-dressed. And tell me, have you that English horse of yours? I want him saddled at once, and then... No, I'll do it myself while you fetch me the wine. I shall do better to have a fresh horse for I must ride like the devil now to the crossroads on the other side of pont au rocher pont au rocher said the innkeeper. Then you will be better advised, Monsieur le Vicomte, to make a detour by Plélan and cross at the fort, for the Blues patrol may very well be out in strength on the other road. I am not sure of it, but there were rumours last night. Aymar remembered the shot in the night. He could not afford to meet any patrols. I'll go round by Plélan, then. But even so, I can do it, he added to himself. Oh, quick, the stable key. Yes, he could easily do it, even by the longer route. He kept assuring himself of that over and over again, as the English horse carried him down the way by the ravine at a pace little short of dangerous. Who could have foreseen this horrible trick of fate? Or had he been incredibly rash in staking so much on Saint-Étienne's continued presence at Caravaine? Oh, surely not, since Saint-Étienne had his orders to remain there for three days, and on that assumption they'd all but completed their joint plan against the imperialists. And, good God, even had he known that there was a possibility of the regiments being ordered off, could he have done otherwise? Could he have left a void to perish, even if this scheme were hazardous? But it was not of a void now that he was thinking as he galloped on under the imminent sunrise. Despite the knowledge that, with a horse like this beneath him, he could get across the river and intercept de Fresne well before the latter reached pont aux his mind was obsessed with horrible little vignettes, of what would happen if, by any ultimate chance, he failed to do it. He tried to shut them from his mental vision, encouraging his horse, but husbanding him as a good rider can, for almost everything depended on his staying power. Himself unconscious of fatigue, though he had been in the saddle, without much intermission, since ten o'clock yesterday morning. And by five o'clock he was on the Lond of Languedia, a desolate, heathy patch of country, riding very hard under clouds and wind. For time, it seemed to him, was going even faster than he. Or perhaps it was only that the nervous strain was beginning to tell on him. And his thoughts went faster than either. He wondered what Avoy were doing, if, oh God, not if, she were alive. Yes, she was alive, free, he was sure of it. Rather, what were they saying of him, Colonel Richard and his officers, 
as they marched to lie in wait at Pont de Roussy, unaware that he was racing them by the other road, racing to stop what he himself had set in motion. Racing, yes. Why had he listened to rumours about patrols and gone round? Why had he been prudent against his own inclination? And he would have done better in the end, perhaps to have kept Igondel, though she was not fresh. Yet this horse was going gallantly enough, though the pace was beginning to distress him. There was foam on his nostrils, and he was sweating more than he should. But de Fresne would probably be rather after than before his time. He would not leave the Bois de Fauvettes before sunrise, and there was always delay about getting the men on the move. It could not be that he should arrive too late. He had only about eight miles to the ford now, and three beyond, and he could still get that much out of the innkeeper's horse, at the cost, perhaps, of cruelty. He had not yet used the spur at all. He was keeping that for the end. And what if, at the end, he found that the imperialists were not at pont au at all, and his men in no danger? In that case, a boy. But his mind, shuddering, refused the alternative. No, his men were in danger. But only, please God, in such danger as he could avert. Amar never was to spur the English horse. It was not more than four or five minutes after this that it put its foot in a rabbit hole and came crashing down. Its rider had just time to know what had happened, and then a curtain was drawn over everything. Later, he gripped the heather and pulled himself to an elbow, sick and giddy. He had been flung clear, and but a glance showed him that his horse's neck was broken. He sank back again. The fall had been so violent that probably only the springy heather in which he lay had saved him from broken limbs himself. For a moment or two, he was not sure that it had saved him. But he sat up again, his throbbing head in his hands. His horse was dead. If not behind time already, he had little to spare. He had just lost how much? And, worst of all, and there were no dwellings on the lawn, or at best only a miserable cottage, where it would be out of the question to procure a horse. Oh, but somewhere, somehow, he must procure one. Loiseleur struggled to his feet, and, after standing a moment to steady himself and take his bearings, started to run stumblingly through the tangled heather towards a thread of smoke just visible about two miles away. A horse, mumbled the old man. Hello, my young gentleman, no horses here. A goat or two. Horses. He emitted a high, cracked sound of mirth. Not if you were the king of France himself. A bundle of rags on the other side of the hearth disclosed itself in the dim and smoky light to be a human being. Matagrin over at the quarry pit, has a horse, it said, in the voice of a woman. He uses it for drawing up the stones. A strong beast it is. Where is the quarry? exclaimed Aymar. Quick, it's life or death. They told him, 
slowly. They were not sure of the distance. Two miles? Four miles? He tossed them a piece of gold and ran out of the hut. How long had he been in finding this place? Out of his road, as it was. He only knew that he had nearly missed it altogether. And now the quarryman was very unwilling to surrender his stocky grey steed. Slow enough, as one could see, but still a horse. Oh, I can't spare him, monsieur, and he's not used to being ridden, and I have no saddle. Oh, that's not of the least consequence. Take off those traces quickly. I will give you twenty-five Napoleon for him, about twice what he's worth. And, if possible, I will return him to you and not reclaim the money. If that does not content you, I shall take him whether you will or no. The quarryman did not look content, but this pale, stern young officer frightened him, and though he made no motion to use his arms. So he stood sulkily aside, while Aymar got onto the grey's back. Only as he rode off, he shouted, A thief! after him and threw a few stones before he sat down to recount the money. Of all tortures to ride a slow horse when the very heaven and earth depended on its speed. Once or twice Aymar thought of abandoning it and taking to his own legs again, but by spurring the grey without mercy he did get out of it a certain measure of progress. And there was his own bodily fatigue, which he could no longer disregard, to reckon with also. Oh, for half an hour of Igondel! But even Igondel could not get him there in time now. Oh, the ford over the Avenne at last. All that shining water had come down from Pont au Rocher. What had it seen there? And the Grey did not like it. He refused to enter. Twice Aymar lashed and spurred him, and then, desperate, he jumped off, and, in water himself, to mid-thigh, tugged him over. It had meant fresh delay, but nothing short of a miracle could save the Epervier now. Ironically, the quarryman's horse went better after the contest. But all the last three miles, his rider's mind seemed to revolve around one word. Nothing but a miracle. A miracle. Oh, God, send a miracle. At the crossroads, not a sign. Have they passed or no? A little way off in a field, a girl was herding goats. He called to her. Yes, monsieur, some shuong, a great many, went by about an hour ago. There's been firing since. They went along there, towards the bridge. Without a word, Aymar set spurs to his horse. There had been no miracle. But at least he might be in time to die with them. Even that was denied him. A mile or so farther along, the road turned sharply to the left, and here, where it was wide and tree-shadowed, and had a spacious grassy margin on one side, he saw the first fugitives of all. There were perhaps a dozen. They ran past them in twos and threes, panic pursued. Not one had a visible wound. They'd just run. His men. He did not try to stay them, for even in that hasty passing, he had seen that they were his newer, 
his least reliable recruit. And then he came on one fallen by the roadside, with another bending over him. For an instant he pulled up. What has happened at the bridge, he asked, but his voice stuck in his throat, for he knew. It was a cursed trap, answered the man, panting. He did not look up. The blues, ambushed there, and they've made mincemeat of us. I see, Yannick, if I tie this round your leg, you could get on farther. Oh, God, said Loiseleur, and rode on, rode on blindly to see more men running under the trees on either side, to hear himself at last called by name, to find himself then in the midst of a small body, retreating with some semblance of order, and clutching his bridle convulsively, and looking up at him with wild eyes, his youngest officer, Clément de Soulange, a boy of twenty, to hear him crying out of the clamour, La cocheterie, la cocheterie, why were you not with us? It was awful. I've got away what I could, and I think Magloire Le Bihan has got more. He had the rear guard, but all the rest. And de Fresne? Killed, I think. I saw him go down. The imperialists were all posted there. They must have known. And he half broke into a sob. Loiseleur, Loiseleur. We will go back to the bridge, said Aymar, turning his ghastly face away. Oh, my children. A man suddenly scrambled down the high bank into the road, a huge Breton, breathless and blood-stained. Oh, I saw you, Loiseleur, from the field. We're making for the forest again. You've heard what happened. Oh, God's truth, if we could find the man who did it. My nephew lies there. We will go back and avenge him, said Aymar quickly. How many men have you over there, Magloire? Bring them into the road. Have they all their muskets? Go back, ejaculated the giant. You are mad, Monsieur le Vicomte. After the trouble we've had in getting away as many as we have, the place is a shambles, more or less. Magloire is right, said young de Solange. You were not there. Believe me, it is of no use. The front ranks were eaten up, those that were not killed. Besides, he added, sinking his voice and pulling with a bleeding hand at his leader's arm, so that Loiseleur bent his head. Besides, I doubt if you could get them to follow you. And looking round at the men whose moods he knew so well, Loiseleur saw that this was probably true. It would have been a terrible blow, had he been capable of feeling it. Very well, he said between his teeth, and then I shall go alone. Well, stand back, please. The boy clung all the tighter. La Cocheterie, you are our only hope. Oh, don't desert us. Oh, don't do that. It is suicide. And to what purpose? And to what purpose, indeed? Imag tried to loosen the bleeding fingers. De Solanges clasped his boot. You will only get yourself captured, La Cocheterie, he sobbed. And what good will that do? Oh, captured. That was the last thing Imag intended, and by Colonel Richard, too. The fugitives, hearing the altercation, were pressing closely round his horse now, 
supplicating like children, and that he should not abandon them. And he saw Magloire's face of black amazement as he turned suddenly round and heard. Well, he could always do it later on, by his own hand. Aymar made a supreme effort, and, rallying all his faculties, began to issue orders as quickly and clearly as if, in the last few minutes, the whole of life had not gone sliding down to ruin. And somehow he got them back, straggling and disheartened remnant that they were, ninety-odd out of five hundred men, to their old quarters in the Bois de Fauvettes, where for the present they would be safe, and where, almost more important still, they felt that they were safe. And there they lifted him, stiff and spent, from his horse. Loiselard, who had heard of the ambush and had nearly killed himself in riding to warn them of it, Loiselard, who was so terribly distressed at what had befallen their comrades, but who, at least, was with them again. How could they do too much for him? Their simple care for him was the final sword thrust, and when, having dragged himself into the deserted little woodcutter's hut, which was his own old headquarters, it became apparent that his right arm and shoulder were by this time temporarily useless from his fall, and Clément de Solange, wounded as he was himself, had insisted on rubbing them for him. It had been all Aymar could do to refrain from putting one of his pistols into the boy's hand and saying, oh, if you want to do something for me, use that. But soon he was too utterly exhausted for remorse or horror or any other emotion to play on him longer. He threw himself down on his couch of bracken and sleep descended like a pall. And the long day was over. 6. But there was a waking, only too early. And by five o'clock next morning, when a mag, very drawn but composed, was giving orders to young de Solange, he had already lived through years of torment. He was dispatching Clément to warn Dutrombley of the disaster and to tell him that in consequence he must not count on the support of the Epervier. And he had further ordered Clément, much to the latter's dismay, not to return to him, but to remain with Dutrombley. For I shall probably have to disband this remnant before you can get back, he said. You see that, Clément, don't you? Yes, said the boy miserably. And as he stood with bent head, fumbling with a bandage round his fingers, he added, Am I to tell Monsieur de Tremblay that there was probably treachery at the bridge? Loiselard turned his head away. You can tell him that it looked like it, he answered after a moment. When Clément was gone, he sat down at the little table in the hut and covered his face. He had chosen de Solange to carry that bitter but unavoidable message because he was fond of him and wanted to get him out of the way before he took his pistol in his own hand or before the inevitable consequences of the disaster came on him from without. For, safe as his remaining men might consider themselves in the Bois de Fauvettes, Aymar knew better. In a day or two, the Bonapartists at Arbel hearing of the affair at the bridge, would certainly follow up their comrade's success and clear out the relics of that nest of hornets in the wood. 
and if he himself had not blown out his brains before that happened, he could then die sword in hand, which would be preferable. So either he must disband his men in time, or make a last stand. Yet, now that he had heard fuller details, he knew that the affair had not been so actually bloody as he had at first been given to understand. And the trap had been so well set that, after the first discharge from the hidden foe, and in particular after Monsieur de Fresne had been seen to fall, the leaderless front ranks had been obliged to surrender. Oh, but they comprised his best, his oldest followers. It was the least devoted, the least trustworthy, who, being in the rear, had escaped, and these would be all the harder to get in hand again. And moreover, worn out though he had been by the close of yesterday, it was clear to Aymar that the ambitious hopes of the big Breton, Magloire Le Bihan, which for some time he had suspected, had vastly grown during his few days' absence, and were likely to swell still more, now that he found himself virtually second in command. Amag's very soul was sick as he got up and went out to inspect his men's depleted equipment. So sick that something whispered to him, Why not tell them that it is you, and you alone, who brought about the catastrophe? But in that case, reorganization would be hopeless. He did not sleep at all that night, and he knew that under the strain of his paralyzing secret, he was beginning to lose his faculty of decision. Some of the men were slipping away already. On the other hand, there was no sign of an attack on the wood. He knew that the imperialists had always credited him with more followers than he actually possessed. If they were hesitating on that score, he could still keep their communications cut a little longer by stopping where he was. Magloire supported this idea. So, all Sunday he did his best to reorganize the handful that was left to him. About nine o'clock, a letter was brought to him. and The handwriting was a voice. And a voice seemed now to have receded into another world, and that hour in the orchard to belong to a life not this. Since his return to the wood, the thought that he had saved her, as presumably he had, at the cost of other men's blood, men sent blindly to the slaughter, who was so terrible that he had not been able to face it. Now here was a letter from her. He went into the hut and opened it with unsteady hands. It was from Cecini and dated April 28th, Friday. So she was safe, had returned unharmed. But did he not know that by what had been paid for her return? He read, Oh, my dearest, to have missed you, and at such a time, and by so little, as it were. I could have arrived last night, though late, had I but known that you were at Cessigny. Oh, if only I had. For though I was stopped at the Cheval Blanc at six o'clock yesterday evening by a body of Bonapartists and detained there for a few hours, on account, I believe, of the movement of troops, at ten o'clock I was told, very civilly, that I could continue my journey if I wished. Aymar stopped reading and leant dizzily against the wall of the hut. Was he going crazy? 
She would have arrived had she but known. At ten o'clock, when Vaubagnier was still in the rose garden at Cécigne, she had been told very civilly that she was free to proceed. She who was to have been shot in the morning. He read on to the end, and the letters dancing before his eyes. As it was, seeing that it was already late, and that I was tired, and since I had Agatha with me, and was quite unmolested by the officers at the inn, having in fact kept my room all evening, I decided, unfortunately, to spend the night at the Cheval Blanc, and proceed early next morning. But this morning I was told with equal civility, but quite firmly, that I could not do so for the moment, and it was not till about four in the afternoon that I was allowed to go on. Oh, I suppose that troops may have been on the march again, but what movement I did here was at daybreak. And then I got home, and heard that you had been here last night, and had gone again, had gone suddenly, having received bad news. Oh, it seems as though fate were determined that we should not meet yesterday, and that I should not tell you myself the news which, though I've prayed and do pray for him, Amaz, I'm not hypocrite enough to pretend was anything of a grief to me. But I will not write any more about it. I cannot. How shall I not see you soon? How that is, if all is well with you and your men. I do not like what Gormag told me of your departure. It seems to me that my anxiety for you weighs heavier now. How send me a line to allay it. Oh, why could we not have met yesterday? How God keep you. Oh, why could we not have met? Amarc staggered over to a chair. Oh, she had never been within a hundred miles of danger, except perhaps through his own action, which appeared to have caused her a further detention. Vaubernier had then surrendered the letter, without ever finding out that the peril was non-existent. No question of driving a shabby bargain with Colonel Richard. Colonel Richard had thoroughly outwitted them both. He had evidently kept a voy until he was sure that her price had been paid. But there need never have been a price. Oh, God, there need never have been a price at all. Some mistake, some terrible misunderstanding. Vaubagnier's, the young officers. His brain reeled. Vaubagnier's, probably. How did it matter whose? It had done its work. All the blood it had spilt was wasted. He had sent his men to death and ruined himself to no purpose whatsoever. The shock was such that it almost deprived Aimard of the power to think, and he sat for hours at the table, and the letter opened before him, staring at the lantern which lit its quiet and shattering phrases, as near to madness as a healthy brain can be, and yet not touch its border. When daylight came, he put the letter and a pistol in his breast, and went out into the forest, so haggard that the men who saw him pass whispered that Loiselard was getting stranger and stranger, and that he was bewitched. And this was May Day, too, when much magic was abroad. But perhaps it was the May morning, which joined hands with Aimard's own youth, to pull him out of his pit of horror and despair. And he had a strong will, and for years now he had been obliged to keep a tight hold on his emotions, 
only his hot temper sometimes escaping his control. He lay on the shore of a lake of bluebells, and though he lay face downwards, their scent and their multitude and their incredible color flooded his brain like strong music. Out of this miraculous blue swamp soared the old steadfast trees, brilliant and tender with promise. And there, after a while, Amar resolved that this should not be the end. At twenty-six, with his past, to die by his own hand or by a self-sought death, it was a confession of complete guilt. Open confession of his partial guilt was doubtless the easier way to deal with the burden of his secret, but it could avail no one. It would almost kill two women. No, he must set his teeth, and though to be with his men, suspicious indeed, but not suspicious of him, was little short of torment to a fastidious sense of honor, he must do it. If she had never been in danger, it was going to be much easier also to keep from avoid her central part in the tragedy. Though heaven alone knew how that part had been fastened on her, and who of his own party would believe a report of Loiselog spread about by the enemy. More than all, in intention, he was absolutely innocent. Never had he meant to sacrifice his men, even for a boy. He was not a traitor, and, but for the most appalling ill luck, he would not now be wearing the semblance of one. On his way back, he met Magloire Le Bihan, who asked to speak to him about the men's attitude. According to him, they were by this time demented over the question of the ambush and were searching for a victim of their suspicions. And when Aymar observed that an ambush was within the laws of war, Magloire retorted, oh, That depends which side is responsible for it. Oh, come, now, Monsieur de la Gauche de Guis, it is too late in the day to ignore the fact that there was treachery over Friday's business. Aymar measured him. It strikes me, Magloire, he said frigidly, that you are a little forgetting that you owe your present position to accident, and that if you do not modify your tone, you will find your tenure of it exceedingly short. A gleam of rage shot into the Breton's deep-set eyes. Oh, accident! pont au was an accident, was it? How was it, then, Monsieur le Vicomte, that you knew of it beforehand and rode to warn us. Oh, that is my affair, returned his leader. It is enough that I did write to warn you. You all know why I was too late. If that is all you wish to say to me, you can go. Oh, keep the pickets out, in case of a sudden attack. If that happens, I dare say we shall find that someone knew of that also beforehand, muttered Magloire darkly. Then you will remember that I warned you of that, too, retorted Aymar. I advise you to profit by the warning. And, turning on his heel, he left him. Once inside the hut again, he felt very tired. Two nights without sleep, three days of the most harassing remorse and strain, and now a passage of arms with his only efficient subordinate. But that Magloire, in spite of his words, had no suspicion of him, he was certain. It was jealousy and wounded vanity which were driving him. 
he would have to give him his congé, and directly it was possible. End of section 16